Several years ago, I came into uh, the youth room and I asked the kids, the teens that were there that night, this question. I said, does God really send people to hell? And, and, and then I asked them, I said, now, don't tell me your answer, just text me your answer. And then, so in their opening times, they were, while we were doing announcements and things like that, they were texting me their answers. And the responses were, were what I expected, to be honest, but they were sad. Uh, in, a, in a group at that time of, of many kids who grew up in the church who have been religiously educated quite well, there were several unchurched kids as well, but their responses did not match the proportion of, if you know what I'm saying, the, the right answers did not match the number of kids who should know the right answer. If I were to ask you that, how would you answer? Does God really send people to hell? You know, today the most common answers would be similar to what I got that night by text. It was, no, he doesn't, hell is not real. Most common answers would be, well, he might, but that's a very cruel God. Or perhaps God doesn't exist, and neither does hell. Those, are the, those were the responses I got that night, and um, those are the responses I'm sure I would get today. I find it fascinating that more people believe in heaven than believe in hell. I don't, don't quite understand how you believe half the story, but not the other half when, when they seem to be consistent to me. But where do we go for answers? You know, if, if I were to ask you, how would you tell me? What would your answer be? Or how would you, def how would you direct, where would you direct others to find the answer to, to a question like that? I want to direct our thoughts tonight, to this morning, I'm sorry, to uh, John chapter 3, because the best place to find answers about living and dying and what comes next is in the Bible, of course, and so that's where we're going to go. And in John chapter 3, we have a very familiar portion of Scripture. You all know John 3.16, and I'm going to begin reading there. And then I'm going to ask you a few questions and ask you to answer. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So I'll ask the question, you answer. Who did God send into the world? All right, he sent Jesus Christ, his only, his only son. He, okay, so he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. Why did God send Jesus? according to this, these passages that we looked at? To what? Save to save the world from what? Ah, look at that again. To save the world from judgment, condemnation. So God sent his son. He sent his son to save the world from judgment. How are we saved from that judgment? Through belief, okay? By belief, and here's the next question. What happens if we refuse to believe? We what? We're judged, we're condemned. Here's the interesting fact. We're judged already. 
Okay? Judgment is not something that happens someday when we reach the end of our life and we die and, well, well, he didn't believe, so I guess I have to judge him. That's not what this passage says. This passage says that every man, woman, and child is condemned or judged when? Right now. Right now, they're already judged. So let's establish some facts about this place called hell, first of all. Three simple facts. Number one might surprise you. Hell is not eternal. Now, before you throw me out of the church, let me, let me explain. Hell is an intermediate place of torment for unsaved souls while awaiting judgment at the great white throne judgment. Okay? At, at, at that point, turn to Revelation 20, verse 14, if you will. Revelation 20, 14. At that point, after the great white throne judgment, then death and hell, or Hades, are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so think of, think of hell, if you will, as like county jail. It's a place where you're, you're held temporarily awaiting this final judgment at the great white throne judgment. The thing is, all who enter that courtroom will be found guilty. And so, then that judgment is eternal. So just for the sake of simplicity, we, we often just refer to hell as this place of eternal judgment. Technically speaking, no, not really. The lake of fire is what is eternal. But it is, but the lake of fire indeed is eternal. Secondly, second fact I want to point out is that man was not created for hell. Man was not created for hell. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, God made man to be in fellowship with him. He did not create him to be sent to this place of eternal torment. That was not his intent. So, man was not made for hell. But thirdly, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 and verse 41. The third statement I'd like to make about this place called hell is that man was not made for hell, and hell was not made for man. Matthew 25, verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into eternal fire, which was prepared for whom? The devil and his angels. It was not made for man. It was originally made as a place for fallen angels. But I do want you to notice here that phrase, which is terrifying to me. It's that phrase, eternal fire. That's important. The scriptures tell us in Romans 3.23 that we have all sinned, every one of us. For, the, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The just punishment for that sin is what? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And all of our sin is against God ultimately. Psalm 51.4 says, against thee 
and thee only have I sinned, and none what is evil in thy sight. You know, when you're mowing grass and deliberately throwing the clippings under the neighbor's yard just because you know it annoys him, that's not a sin against your neighbor. That's a sin against God. And, and since God is an infinite and eternal being, and since man is an eternal being as well, the punishment for sin against eternal God must be eternal as well. And that's what the scriptures say. It's called here in Matthew 25, eternal fire. Don't, don't try to keep up with me here, but Matthew 3.12 calls it a place of unquenchable fire. Daniel chapter 12 in the Old Testament calls it a place of everlasting contempt. Mark chapter 9 Jesus is speaking, describing what this place is like. And in Mark 9, 44, he says it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament calls it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, a place of eternal destruction. John, in Revelation 14, says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever And again, in Revelation 20, verse 10, he says that their torment endures day and night forever and ever. That's terrifying to me. And with such a hard description of this place, how can a loving God send somebody to hell? Indeed, it's a common question. It's not a good one. There's a flawed assumption in that question that our culture, I think, has embraced wholeheartedly, and the assumption is that anything loving must also be non-confrontational, non-judgmental, passive, and absolutely tolerant. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, or not yesterday, Friday, Friday afternoon, I was sitting in the doctor's office, and I, I, well, I entered the doctor's office, and I walked up to the receptionist's desk, and there was a sign posted on the wall right next to the window, and this is what it said. To help us better serve our patients, we kindly ask that you please finish your phone call before coming to the receptionist. We will patiently wait for you to finish your call. I read that, I checked in, I went back to my seat, I sat down, I looked at that sign, and I can't explain to you why, but I was, I was, I was a little bit angry at that sign. <laughs> and the reason I was so upset with it was because it was the most, that's the most verbiose sign ever. Do you hear all the, I don't know, it was wimpy. I'll put it that way. It's a wimpy sign. We, in order to serve our patients better, we kindly ask that you please, we'll wait for you. And I thought, you know what? That sign would be a whole lot more effective if it just said, no phone calls at the desk, it's rude. <laughs> right? But we don't, we don't talk like that anymore. We're so afraid of, of, we just have this idea that we have embraced that anything which isn't tolerant, anything which is confrontational in the slightest bit, is unloving. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. I would ask you to turn there with me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 tells us some things about, about God, some very important things about God that I think we need to be remembered, reminded of. 
And here, John, this, this elderly apostle says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Skip down to verse 16. And we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is what? Love. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God and God in him. You see, God does not possess love. He is love. I possess love sometimes on a good day. But he is love. And so there's this obvious flaw in the question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? And the flaw is in the belief that allowing people to go to hell is somehow unloving, an unloving act on God's part. And if, guys, if, if we as humans decide that doing so, that sending somebody to a place called hell is unloving, then, then we become, we be declared ourselves to be more loving than God. And we've made ourselves both judge and jury of God himself. Now, I want to direct us, these, this thinking towards missions. So bear with me for just a few more minutes. I have some good news for you. In the past 60 years, the number of true followers of Jesus Christ has grown from 3% of the world's population to 12% of the world's population in the last 60 years. That's good news. Um, in 1945, there were 80 million believers, it's estimated, worldwide. In 1945. In 2016, it's estimated that there are 800 million believers in Jesus Christ worldwide. Now, these, these, this isn't just Christians, but these are true believers in Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation, their only hope for, for their future. And Christ and Christ alone on the basis of faith. It's estimated 1945, 80 million, 2016, 800 million believers. The world has never been more Christian than it is right now. I'm glad for that. Never before in history have more people been coming to faith in Christ. That's fantastic news. Uh, these statistics, by the way, come from Dr. George Murray. He's the president of Columbia International University, one of the most missions-minded universities in our world today. So that's good news, but here's some bad news. Still, in 2019, nine out of ten people in the world are spiritually lost. Let that sink in for just a bit, a minute. In light of that place called hell that we just talked about, nine out of ten people in the world are heading to that place right now. Two out of three people in the world have never heard a clear explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've never heard it. And the bad news, I think it's even sadder, it reflects what Katie had said. One out of three people in the world do not have a true believer in Christ near them enough that they could hear the gospel if they wanted to. There's nobody near them enough to tell them. And yet, 
the Great Commission remains the same. Go make disciples. You know, North Carolina has more Southern Baptist churches than the nation of Turkey has believers. Can I say that again? The state of North Carolina has more Southern Baptist, that's a subset of a subset of Christian churches, Southern Baptist churches, than the entire nation of Turkey has believers. I don't know if you've heard of a lady named Dr. Henrietta Mears. She was one of the most influential Christian women of the 20th century. Fabulous young lady, or fa- fabulous lady. Um, many people credit her with starting the Sunday school movement. She said this, the Bible does not talk about a hundred different things. The Bible talks about one thing, 100 different ways. And that one thing is the redemption of mankind. And the way the world, the redemption, the way the world is redeemed is through missions. So I wanted to give you a definition of missions. Missions is God's work of bringing Jesus Christ to a world that needs him through you. Missions is God work, God's work of bringing, redemption, bringing Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs him through you. It's God's work. He started it. He's going to accomplish it. It's, a, it's his work of bringing Jesus Christ, the only hope for the world. It's, it's his work of bringing Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs him. How? Through you. That's missions. The passage that Matt read for us in our scripture reading says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. There are 7 billion people in the world today. 5 billion have never heard an accurate presentation of the gospel of Christ. 2.5 billion people do not even know that there's a Jesus to be believed in. We know where they are. Many of them are in Japan. We have the resources to get to them. What we don't have is people who are willing to go. And I was, I was preparing this message. I thought, but you know, we have one who's here today who is. She is willing to go. Missions is what? It's God's work of bringing Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs him through you. And so here's where, we, here's where all this is heading. How can God use you to take this message of Jesus Christ to the world? And I think probably the easiest way would be to give. Katie's here. She's willing. She's waiting. She just needs the resources to go. Guys, I'm going to meddle a little bit. <laughs> I don't know what you have planned to do after the service, but maybe you plan to have dinner at a restaurant after church today. Would you be willing to eat at home instead? Take that $50 you would have spent on lunch and give it to Katie? Young adult, could you hold off on that new phone so that this young lady could follow the Lord's leading? I know the offering's counted already. 
I think we'd be willing to count it again. There are little offering envelopes in the pews in front of you. If you just write her name on that envelope and drop it in that plate as you walk out the door, it will help her go overseas. Maybe God's calling you to support her or someone else regularly, maybe monthly. Could you live with a smaller cable package? Instead of 200 channels, could you live with 50? And take what you save and give that to somebody every month so that the world can be reached through you? Yeah, these are sacrifices, but (laughs) they're so small. So small in light of eternity. Maybe God's calling you to go yourself. You know, that question is not only for young people who are trying to plan out their lives and their career. This is a question for, for the retiree. This is a question for every father, every mother. How can God reach the world through me? Missions. God's work of bringing Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs him. How? Through you, through me.